The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for coming today. Um, this is a little awkward with this angle, but that's okay. Um, so I started thinking about the connection between alienation and social reproduction a few years ago. I was looking at some old labor posters and came across a poster for the eight-hour day. And it's a, it's a cool poster, which I wish I had had time to print out, but it's got a panel that says eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, and eight hours for what we will. And I thought at the time, and I still think, eight hours for what we will, yeah, right. <laughs> even, even with an eight-hour day, which many of us don't have, and that eight, that eight hours for what we will has not yet been achieved. And I think you could argue that sleep under capitalism could be a topic unto itself. And um, sleep under capitalism is also not free, and often not nearly um, close to eight hours for most people. Um, on the most basic level, most in the working class don't have nearly the amount of free time that we need, and the cost of free time can be quite high. We spend our free time recovering from work, running errands, taking care of family, taking care of pets, cleaning, shopping, planning, organizing, sweeping, putting things away, looking for things, driving kids around, fixing things, looking for more things, putting more things away, going to the doctor, going to the dentist. The remaining time, and there may well be no remaining time, but if there is, you may try to go to a movie, go bowling, see some music, go out to eat, whatever, but all of those activities cost money, and many of them are prohibitively expensive. I'm always shocked at how expensive bowling is. <laughs> so your free time isn't free on a couple levels. It's not free in the sense of availability. Most of our non-work time is consumed by activities that get us back to work or school the next day, and it's certainly not free in the financial sense. And it's not free from alienation, which will be a big part of this talk. The process of production, of earning a wage, of our workplace activity is part of a greater whole, which includes, too, the process of reproduction. So for those not familiar with the um, social reproduction theory, and this is a plug for the book, um, it is a great book that's Spoiler alert, my review is very favorable to the, um, the book, and I do recommend picking it up. Um, but if you're not real uh, familiar with the theory, I'll take a minute to um, go over a couple things. Social reproduction theory uh, views the totality of capitalism with the realm of reproduction and production as interlocking parts of a whole, dependent on each other, and capitalism is dependent on both. So all the activities that I described above, cleaning, shopping, looking for things, etc., could be said to be part of the realm of reproduction, and more specifically, the process of the reproduction of labor power. So the reproduction of labor power is um, what I would call, what's been described as, the maintenance and reproduction of the working class. It's the maintenance of the worker themselves, the maintenance of the non-laboring members of the family, children, elderly family members, family members on disability, or people who are unemployed, and finally, the replacement of one generation of workers with the next. It's a process, um, though not always entirely, the responsibility of the working class itself and is often carried out in some form of the family. Social reproduction theory underpins the Marxist explanation for women's oppression, I would say expands upon it, and in exploring unpaid domestic labor as well as paid caring labor, confirms the fact that the bulk of this work, paid and unpaid, is still carried out by women. Many of these 
many of these things that we do, taking care of ourselves, others, our homes, etc., we do in our free time, whether we're in the labor market or not. And for many of us, our jobs are in, in fact, I would say, part of the realm of paid reproduction of labor power. Teachers, healthcare workers, childcare workers, um, elder care, for example. Uh, the reproduction of labor power is a process vital to the totality of capitalist relations, for if the realm of production relies on human labor, then it also relies on the realm of reproduction to keep maintaining and supplying that human labor. So while alienation may originate at the point of production where the worker sells her labor, alienation also governs the areas outside of production, permeates them, and is inescapable. Um, I'm going to go over Marx's theory of alienation. This is going to be the more theoretical part of the talk, but I, I will kind of pull out the, um, the take-home messages. Um, at Marx's time, much of the wage labor that he was talking about was industrial, and he used the factory model as the basis for much of his writing. The crux of Marxist alienation is that the worker sells her labor, therefore it's no longer our own. The cleavage of the worker from her labor is at the root of alienation, or also what Marx calls estrangement in the economic and philosophical, philosophic manuscripts of 1844. As humans, we have agency, we have potential for creativity and intellectual and artistic development and for self-determination. The capitalist mode of production strips that from us, alienating us from the very qualities that make us human. Our ability to interact, transform, and create is funneled into our role as a worker, and those qualities are now turned against us. And this process starts with our labor power and the fact that under capitalism, we sell our labor for a wage. This is a long quote, so, um, but it's, it's easier than try to paraphrase it. The fact that labor is external to the worker, i.e. it does not belong to his intrinsic nature, that in his work, therefore, he does not affirm himself but denies himself, does not feel content but unhappy, does not develop freely his physical and mental energy but mortifies his body and ruins his mind. The worker, therefore, only feels himself outside of work and in his work feels outside himself. He feels at home when he is not working, and when he is working, he does not feel at home. His labor is therefore not voluntary, but coerced. <clears throat> it is forced labor. And is therefore not the satisfaction of a need. It is merely the means to satisfy needs external to it. Its alien nature emerges clearly in the fact that as soon as no physical or other compulsion exists, labor is shunned like the plague. Labor, our labor belongs to another, and it is the loss of ourselves. As a result, Therefore, the worker only feels himself freely active in our animal functions, eating, drinking, procreating, or at most in dwelling and in dressing up, etc. And in his human functions, he no longer feels himself to be anything but an animal. What is animal becomes human, and what is human becomes animal. So what Marx is getting to here is that the selling of our labor so that it is no longer ours sets a series of relationships in motion. Selling our labor, laboring for a wage, using that wage to hopefully or at least try to get our needs met, starting over again the next day is ground zero for alienation. What Marx acknowledges, and I think he says it really beautifully in the quote above, is the emotional and psychological toll that capitalism takes on the worker. Labor, uh, the quote again, mortifies his body and ruins his mind. It's critical to note that Marx does not argue that this sta state of alienation is inherent to the human condition, as some philosophers do, but rather the opposite is true. Material conditions set alienation in motion. Marx explores alienation in four different realms. The process, 
workers are alienated from our own labor process. We have no control of the process. We make no decisions about how we about how and what we do. This and that's that's me. This is this is Marx. Um, this relation is the relation of the worker to his own activity as an alien activity not belonging to him. It is acti activity as suffering, strength as weakness, begetting as emasculating the worker's own physical and mental energy, his personal life. For what is life but activity? As an activity which is turned against him, independent of him, and not belonging to him. So alienated in the process. And then the next one is alienated in the product. We make no decisions about what we produce. We pour our energy into a product which quickly moves on. Um, Marx describes it this way. The relation of the worker to the product of labor as an alien object exercising power over him. This relation is at the same time the relation to the sensuous external world, to the objects of nature as an alien world inimically opposed to him. So we're alienated at the, in the process of labor, the product of labor. We're also alienated from ourselves. In our labor, we deny ourselves our humanity. Marx describes it this way. Man's species being, both nature and his spiritual species property, into a being alien to him, into a means of his individual existence. It estranges, it estranges from man his own body, as well as external nature and his spiritual aspect, his human aspect. Like I said, the things that make us human are turned against us in the, um, process of, in the labor process. And finally, uh, we're alienated from each other. Each worker, even when we are collectivized in a workplace, labors under these conditions of alienation and atomization. Marx is, uh, describes it this way. An immediate consequence of the fact that man is estranged from the product of his labor, from his life activity, from his species being, is the estrangement of man from man. When man confronts himself, he confronts the other man. What applies to a man's relation to his work, to the product of his labor, and to himself, that is alienation, also holds of a man's relation to the other, and the other man's labor, and the object of labor. Um, in a recent Jacobin article, Vivek Chibber um, describes this too in an article called Why We Still Talk About the Working Class. While they're at work, the workers, they have to surrender their autonomy to the employer. The wage contract essentially says, I'll come and work for you, you give me some money, and for the duration of time that I'm working for you, I'm under your authority. What I do with my time, where I stand, where I go, who I talk to, how many bathroom breaks I take, where I look, how fast I work, this is not at all my discretion, it is the discretion of you, the employer. That waking time for most people in the world is most of their waking day. Like I said, the eight hours for what we will. We're still working on that one. Um, that, that working time comprises anywhere between two-thirds and three-fourths of all time that they're awake, which means effectively that three-fourths of their active life is spent giving up their autonomy to someone whose interests are lined up against their own interests. The lack of autonomy inside the workplace is often compounded by being under the employer's control outside the workplace. So the, parameter of our, uh, the parameters of our lives, even outside of work, are governed by the same forces that govern us at work. In jobs like manufacturing and service, alienation from product and process feels pretty, I think it's pretty accessible. You can kind of get that. I think it's easy to put your finger on that. But what about people who labor in healthcare, education, elder care? The product of our work is obscured, though the process, I would argue, is, pretty as, alien, is as alienating as in manufacturing or service. The product of the work of alienated labor in the realm of social reproduction is labor power. For example, in education, 
the work we do involves care and training of children, obviously. Um, in the medical and mental health field, it's the birth, maintenance of bodies and minds. But under the layers of the actual work we do is the reproduction of labor power. The product of our labor is very deeply obscured and there are so many of, as are so many of the actual relations under capitalism. Like in the realm of production, workers in social reproduction are estranged from the process. We have no control over our workplaces. We make none of the decisions that govern us and we have a limited say in our working conditions. Side note, unless you strike, that turns out that that makes a big difference. <laughs> but as in the realm of production, we are alienated from each other and from ourselves. Um, and that's counters in much of the narrative of care work, uh, but it, I believe it is nonetheless accurate. So how does alienation affect our lives when we're not working? In the eight hours for what we will, am I no longer alienated? Is my social reproduction labor at home unalienated because I'm not paid for it? I would argue no, because while I'm not paid for it, and maybe we should be, it's still not free. Whether paid or not, social reproduction produces labor power, a commodity vital to capitalism. In addition, in order to complete my social reproduction tasks at home, I need to rely on certain commodities. Dish soap, coffee, coffee maker, Swiffer, laundry soap, toothpaste, toothbrush, dog food, dog brush, dog toothbrush, car, truck, bus pass, etc., etc. And all of these commodities is the result of someone else's alienation. Now alienation, as Marx has described it, is a condition with material roots, but that doesn't mean that that condition doesn't also have emotional and psychological consequences. If you're alienated in all of these vital parts of your life, it's not surprising that so many people feel isolated, lonely, anxious, hopeless, lacking control over their own lives, and depressed. And while mainstream theorists and philosophers may disagree as to the root of this alienation, there is no shortage of consideration on its effects in real life. Alienation and its partner isolation is blamed for men, or are blamed for many acts of violence and rage from a um, fairly recent psychology today article. Even our current epidemic of violence can be partially understood as a perverse attempt to transcend loneliness and alienation, as existential psychologist Roy O'May explains. Violence is the ultimate destructive substitute which surges in to fill a vacuum where there, there is no relatedness. Violence can sometimes be a desperate last-ditch attempt to break out of one's excruciating let some, yet sometimes self-imposed state of social, social uh, isolation as exemplified by the deeds of profoundly lonely alienated individuals like John Hinckley who shot Ronald Reagan, um, Mark David Chapman who killed John Lennon, and many other mass shooters at schools, movie theaters, and shopping malls. Um, they then go on to say, such acts of seemingly random violence can be considered destructive and pathological expressions of a quote, a wicked rage for recognition in extremely lonely, isolated, alienated, frustrated and angry individuals starving for intimacy, love, human contact, and a sense of belonging and social validation. Uh, there's also a phenomena in the last couple years um, of incels, involuntary celibates, um, yeah. usually male, um, the phenomenon of toxic masculinity and the argument that these exist in part due to alienation and isolation. And at that, as in the quote above, school shootings are a result of the same alienation and isolation. These are very important, but also very, very tricky questions. The majority of workers who are alienated, as I said, and may also be depressed, anxious, lonely, and angry, do not commit mass shootings or other acts of extreme violence. Here is a complicated confluence of alienation, extremism, and institutionalized misogyny. 
the incel claims an injustice as a result of being denied what is presumably his, that is a woman. Um, Alex Manassian, a self-described incel, killed 10 people in Toronto this April. He spoke in favorably of Elliot Roger, described here in a Vox article. And um, Well, it says what happened. In 2014, a sexually frustrated man named Elliot Roger killed six and wounded 14 in a shooting spree in Santa Barbara, California. He justified his actions in a lengthy and creepy manifesto set to, sent to acquaintances and then widely shared online as a retaliation against women as a group for refusing to provide him with the sex he owed he was owed. Um, New York, a New York Times article in the aftermath of the Toronto killing um, says, incels are misogynists who are deeply suspicious and disparaging of women whom they blame for denying them their right to sexual intercourse. At their most extreme, incels have advocated rape and other forms of violence against women. An incel is angry that his entitlement, that is again sex with a woman, is denied. This is an extreme and in some way logical and in some way not logical conclusion uh, to the notion of unfulfilled male entitlement in an increasingly misogynistic and violent culture in the United States. And that this is taken seriously by none other than the New York Times is reason for concern. Ross Dufat, in a bizarre, people probably read this article, in a bizarre May opinion piece, he now kind of he now kind of distances himself from and says it was misread, misunderstood. He ruminates on, among other things, isolation framing incel rage as a response not to misogyny and extremism, but of lack of access to sex. It's a question of redistrib redistribution. He posits. <laughs> There is an alternative conservative response, of course, namely that our widespread isolation and unhappiness and sterility might be dealt with reviving or adapting older ideas about the virtues of monogamy and chastity and permanence. That sounds like The Handmaid's Tale, but... Um, Coming out of the Parkland students rising up against school shootings and the NRA's chokehold on Republican politicians came a debate about alienation and so social isolation in schools. I taught in middle schools for a long time. I've taught in high schools for a long time. I can attest to the fact that they are difficult places for many teens. But again, most teens, bullied or not, do not bring assault weapons to school and kill their peers and teachers. The mainstream response to these shootings, that we need more security, that we need to arm the teachers, was supplemented by a call to end bullying and social isolation. Again, this is a tricky thing to talk about because it's very real. But the oversimplification of, for example, the walk up, not out movement, or that call missed the mark a lot. Uh, the walk, walk up, not out, that call came the same time. In fact, at least where we were, the same day that the students were walking out, March 14th, were walking out nationally against school shootings. These are, the, um, these are from the call. Walk up to a kid who is sitting, and this was, this was posed as an alternative to walking out. Walk up to a kid who is sitting alone at lunch and invite him or her to join you. Walk up to someone who seems lonely. Say hello and strike up a conversation. Walk up to a student who disrupts class and ask them how they're doing. Walk up to someone who has different views than you and share opinions. Walk up to a classmate, make eye contact and really listen to them. Walk up to someone who never seems to smile and tell a joke to make them happy. I know. <laughs> Walk up to someone you don't know very well and talk to them. Walk up to a teacher or staff member and thank them for what they do. So I'm not necessarily against doing any of these individual things or encouraging kids to do these things, but I am really against 
counterposing that to the walkouts. And I'm really against the oversimplistic notion that individual kindness can correct the deep and complex societal problems that incite mass shooters. And I'm really against I'm really against telling young people that it's their responsibility to do it, especially on the day of the walkouts. Students have enough pressure with grades, peer relationships, worries about the future, wanting to feel safe and supported at home and school. By the way, they're scared. Every, you know, we all go back to school the next day after a school shooting and everybody's on edge. Um, we, students, teachers, we want to feel safe and supported at home and at school. And by the way, students were leading the first real movement against gun violence in this country. That they should be told that they're also responsible for being nice to the socially isolated kid who, quote, may be the next school shooter, also from the walk-up call, is, I found it offensive, but I also, but more importantly, it's way oversimplistic um, about what's really going on here. Understanding mass shootings and the phenomenon of gun violence in the U.S. requires an understanding of the brutal racist history of the United States. As a, as a settler, a colonial settler state, and the way that the Second Amendment emerged from that, as well as the very modern and deadly combination of neoliberal atomization, isolation, erosion of collectivity, hopelessness, extremist politics, i.e., white supremacy and misogyny, and widespread gun availability. Um, in the debate around um, gun violence, Danny Katch uh, wrote some really good stuff in Socialist Worker. This is from one of his articles. After each horrible tragedy, politicians loudly debate gun laws and nothing else. This, had, this has had the effect of obscuring that many of the other con contributors to violence in America, the most obvious one being that we live in a state of permanent war. And a generation of young men has been bombarded their entire lives by commercials, movies, and halftime celebrations that celebrate young men using assault rifles to murder people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Into that picture is also the rise of suicide rates in the United States, an overwhelming opioid drug crisis, and an increase in diagnoses of depression and anxiety, especially in young people. The real life experience of alienation in the working class is devastating. Capitalism creates the problem and fails to then give us the adequate tools to deal with it. So how do we deal with it? Obviously, we're here because we believe, like the t-shirt says, another world is possible. Alienation can be mitigated by good politics and exacerbated by bad politics. On a class level, the working class is alienated, period. That's, a, that's sort of a function of capitalism is alienation. Individually in, or in groups, however, we can mitigate alienation and likewise it can be exacerbated. So here are two examples. A female worker in a Nicaraguan sweatshop and a well-paid male worker in a, in a US university are both alienated in the Marxist sense from product, process, self, and other. But their experiences of that condition are worlds apart. The worker in the sweatshop has a sexist boss. She was forced to provide a pregnancy test to, pr to prove she wasn't pregnant and promises not to get pregnant during her employment. She makes clothes for the Gap and has paid a fraction of what these clothes are sold for. She's also responsible for the care of her elderly mother and her two small children. The worker in the university is paid pretty well. He's in a union. He has medical benefits. He has some student debt from advanced degrees, and he lives in a modest house and drives a new car. He's single, but he helps out with his sister who is unemployed. He's not a total jerk. You know, he's just a little bit better off. He's better off than the um, woman in the sweatshop. Um, 
Both workers are exploited, oppressed, and alienated, but due to geography and class position, their experiences are wildly different. And again, social reproduction explains how the experience of alienation, like the experience of paid and unpaid work, is differentiated by gender, as those examples also lay out. Collective struggle and solidarity are ways that the working class can push back on alienation and make real change in the world. In a neoliberal political context where the individual is supreme and narcissism is revered, old-fashioned solidarity it just seems old-fashioned. So how does neoliberalism address alienation? I call it the mindfulness industrial complex. <laughs> work, there are a number of apps you can use to help take the edge off. <laughs> I have some of them on my phone. Um, now meditation, mindfulness, being present, etc. are perfectly good things, but what if they're used as an alternative to making actual change? Adapting to a sick society is not a sign of health, as the saying goes. And, and is there not irony in the ubiquitous mantra of slowing down and being present when at work we are constantly sped up. And mindfulness and its cousin self-care are big business. The apps, the products, the workshops, the programs at schools, that businesses buy into, the coloring books add up to a billion dollar business. The neoliberal roots of the expansion of mindfulness in the business culture and education and its potentially nefarious effect is explored in a recent article in, uh, from Takoon um, about it's called mindfulness and its limitations in a neoliberal society. The authors argue that the current practice of mindfulness, while it can help in specific situations, is ultimately at risk of conditioning people to adapt to a sick society. They argue, as does another article called Mick Mindfulness, mindfulness has been stripped of its Buddhist intention to engage with the world in favor of a commoditized, commoditized version of mindfulness repackaged for our consumption. Arguing that neoliberalism is no longer just a conservative ideology, but now a mainstream one, they quote the Takoon article, quotes David Harvey. Um, neoliberalism, he says, quote, has become incorporated into the common sense way many of us interpret, live in, and understand the world. The article goes on to say, for an actor in a neoliberal society, mindfulness is a skill to be cultivated or a resource we put to use. When mastered, it will help you navigate the tricky currents of the capitalist ocean, developing the present-centered and non-judgmental attention that mindfulness counsels gives you a powerful way to deal with the stress and anxiety that marketplace capitalism and marketplace competition inevitably generate. You have developed a powerful new tool for maximizing your personal well-being. And this may help you sleep better at night, but its consequences for society are potentially dire. By deflecting attention from the outer conditions that framework in a capitalist society, mindfulness risks being co-opted as, as a brand of capitalist spirituality. In this form, stress is privatized and pathologized. Mm -hmm. Search inside yourself, counsels um, Google's Chade Mengtan, for there, not in the structures of market-driven cult, culture, but inside yourself lies the source of your problems. That's all from the Takoon article. For the McMindfulness article, um, they argue Buddhist scholarship differentiates between right mindfulness and wrong mindfulness. Mindfulness must be practiced with attention to the operation of power and context if it is to generate useful and liberating insights. It is irreducible to exclusively personal or individual experience. 
Rather, it must be practiced as a gateway to ethics of care and community, the mindful commons. So it's like, I'm not a Buddhist, but it, the, um, the idea is that it's collectivizing, not atomizing. Stripped of its ethical and contextual roots, mindfulness-based practices borrowed from Buddhism and Zen lineages risk shoring up the very sources of suffering from which the Buddha set out to liberate himself and others. So how does this play out? When I lead my students in a meditation to counter test anxiety, and yes, that's real, <laughs> um, those exist, am I also part of a struggle, though, that helps challenge high-stakes testing, or am I just helping my students cope? When I use breathing and mindfulness to deal with stress at, at work, am I just turning inward, or am I also engaging my coworkers in a discussion, or even better, a campaign? Now, of course, opportunities to struggle are far harder than a quick meditation minute which is of course why neoliberal mindfulness is so easily incorporated into business politics and education. And to be clear, I'm not against mindfulness and self-care. I'm very pro-mindfulness and self-care. What I'm against is the commodification and resale of them back to us, stripped from any potentially liberatory content and also for nice profit. So what are, are the alternatives then for combating alienation in our lives? Part of the way we figure out how to fight against our alienation is to understand its roots. Is it, like Marx said, inherent to an economic system, therefore can be eliminated with the elimination, eliminated with the elimination of the material conditions? Or is it like existentialists or other philosophers claim an inherent component of our, our human condition and therefore immutable, and so the best we can do is mitigate it? As Marxists, we uh, do believe that it is material, it has material roots, and we aim to both mitigate it and combat it now, but also to completely upend the system that not only alienates us, but exploits and oppresses us. So how do we do that? Unions are one of the only remaining organizations, barely remaining organizations, that exist for the working class. And with the recent Supreme Court decision on Janus, union power is all the more precarious. Never, no, nonetheless, working in a job with a strong union, and not nearly, not nearly about enough of us do, but it does provide some structure for fight back. And even the little rebellions, how many times have I sat in faculty meetings or staff meetings when um, in a principal or upper administrator says, and now this, we're all going to do this. And everybody's like, I'm not doing that. And even, even just that sort of collective response um, is actually pretty rewarding. And, it, and it's empowering, although it, it's fairly small scale. Um, we have to take inspiration from other struggles. We couldn't possibly all participate in the, in the teacher strike wave, but we can participate in the solidarity and the confirmation of our belief that regular people can organize what they s repeatedly said last night, if I can do it, so can you. And when they do, uh, we just might win some stuff. Social reproduction theory teaches us that uh, teaches us that all in all, <laughs> social reproduction theory teaches us that in all the nooks and crannies we live, work, and sleep in are also areas that we can struggle in in our free time and in our not so free time. It also teaches us that the work in the realm of reproduction may not create profit the same way that manufacturing a car, a phone, or a fidget spinner, or whatever, might um, produce. It is vital to the system as a whole, and that alone gives us great struggle to, in that arena, and it gives us great power. We need to be creative and bold in looking for areas to struggle in, and in struggle we can build, and looking for struggles that we can also build solidarity with. 
Right now, with the Trump White House and the seemingly constant attacks, it feels more isolating and more alienating than ever. But that's why finding areas to struggle in large and small is especially important. It's important to remember that these realities we face, alienation, exploitation, oppression, racism, gender oppression, imperialism, they're all social constructs. This does not mean that they're not real or that being a social construct makes them any less horrible. It just means that it's not inevitable. It's not a result of some flawed human nature. It's not immutable. And most importantly, if it's socially constructed, it can be socially deconstructed. One of the reasons that we believe the working class has to change the world for ourselves rather than hope for a reformist or a politician, as great as they may be from time to time, the reason we have to do it for ourselves is that we believe the working class has to experience our own agency in order to transform from a class in itself to a class for itself. Capitalism oppresses us, exploits us, and alienates us, literally stripping us from our own humanity. The best tool to fight all of these things is solidarity. And we need to fight these things to get, we need to fight these things ourselves. As exciting as it is to find our politics reflected in a politician or leader, we need to be the agents in our own struggles. It's through the struggles that we can reclaim our humanity. Nicole, a West, the, one of the West Virginia teachers who spoke last night, spoke about her husband, um, who was also a teacher, telling her that he realized during the course of their struggle that our labor is ours. And it may not always feel that way. Alienation, exploitation, and oppression work together to steal our labor and our sense of our self-worth. But as Nicole described, striking and struggling brought her husband and most likely, most likely many more teachers closer to the feeling of that sense of self-worth and their agency. Struggles and solidarity, especially a successful strike wave, can push back on the isolation and atomization that neoliberal capitalism force on us, giving us a glimpse of what it could be like in a society where our labor truly is ours and truly is free. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.